Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Russia and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Ben Noble, an Associate Professor of Russian Politics at University College London, an Associate Fellow at Chatham House, and a co-author of the recent book, Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, with a question mark after that last part. Thanks very much for joining me today, Ben. Thanks for the invitation, Steve. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Now, uh, I mentioned the book on Alexei Navalny, which you co-authored with Morvan Laouet and Jan Mati Dolbaum. Uh, This is not scientific, but I think it's safe to say that due to the war in Ukraine, which is raging with really no sign of an end uh, more than eight months after Russia launched its large-scale invasion of Ukraine in February, Navalny has been getting less attention this year than he did in 2021 or in 2020. Uh, or in some of the years before that. Um, And as background, I'll just briefly say that in August 2020, Navalny was poisoned in Siberia with a weapons-grade nerve agent in what he believes was an assassination attempt carried out by the Federal Security Service, or FSB, at the behest of President Vladimir Putin. And Navalny has actually provided substantial evidence pointing to the FSB. Um, But in any case, Navalny survived... Um, barely. And in January 2021, he returned to Russia following treatment in Germany. He was immediately arrested uh, and he is now imprisoned following two separate convictions on charges that he dismisses as absurd as he, as he had in his previous, the previous cases against him um, before the poisoning. Now, his network also, uh, since his return, his network of offices and his anti-corruption foundation Um, which was really a thorn in the side of the Kremlin, uh, have been branded extremist and outlawed. And many of his associates have fled the country to avoid possible prosecution or actual prosecution. Uh, The sentences Navalny has been handed uh, since his return, I I believe, are for two and a half years and nine years. Ben, what what I want to ask you about today is an apparent new case against Navalny who said earlier this month that he was informed he's now being investigated on charges of propagating terrorism, public calls for extremist activities, the financing of an extremist organization, and the rehabilitation of Nazism. Again, these are charges he says are baseless and politically motivated. Uh, And in acerbic comments on social media the other day, Navalny, who is 46 years old, said his lawyers calculated that he could be in prison for 30 more years if tried and convicted. Now, here's where the war in Ukraine comes into it. Uh, Navalny has denounced the Russian invasion, and his organization recently said uh, that it would reopen its offices to fight against uh, the military mobilization that Putin ordered in September, and under which up to 300,000 men have been called up, and some of them sent to Ukraine with minimal training. Uh, and some, in fact, have already, have already been killed as, the, as Russia suffers setbacks there. Uh, ben, I'm wondering what you think about this new investigation that Navalny said he's been informed of. Is it punishment for his stance on the invasion or just part of an effort 
to keep Navalny in prison as long as Putin is in power. Uh, it, kind of, it comes amid reports that the Kremlin is preparing for Putin's candidacy in the 2024 presidential election. And, of course, he's also now eligible to run in 2030 as well. Or maybe there's something else behind, uh, behind the new investigation. Yeah, I think I should begin with a basic point, even if it's boring, that I haven't got any privileged insight into what the Russian authorities are thinking with the individual decisions that they make regarding Alexei Navalny. But what I can say is that I wasn't that surprised by Navalny's announcements in May and October of these new charges against him. The reason why? Well, I think it's safe to say that the Russian political leadership is intent on keeping him behind bars for the foreseeable future including across the 2024 presidential election. Uh, Although Putin hasn't yet formally said so, I think the current president is overwhelmingly likely to stand and, of course, face a thoroughly uncompetitive field, given his decimation of dissenting voices in the country over recent years. But especially in 2021, we saw the attacks against Navalny, his team and his movement, but then also especially since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February this year. I think beyond the broad aim of keeping Navalny out of sight and out of mind for the vast majority of Russians in Russia, particular individual moves taken against Navalny might well be explained by steps, activity statements made by him and his team. Uh, And his team, of course, is based in an office in Vilnius. Examples of Team Navalny's activities that likely annoy the Russian authorities? Well, they're things like the content of the popular politics channel on YouTube, their decision to relaunch the regional network of offices, the Shtabwe Navalnova, to resist mobilization, as you've already mentioned, and the recent addition of 200 people to its existing list of around 6,000 people. In the team's language, those people are bribe takers and warmongers, and the team wants Western governments to sanction these individuals. Beyond the new charges that you mentioned, there are, of course, other forms of punishment against Navalny, most notably uh, him being sent to solitary confinement repeated times in the Mielachava maximum security prison colony where he now is. Although formerly for minor infractions of prison rules, Navalny himself has claimed that these are punishments regarding his stance on the war, regarding his criticism of Vladimir Putin more generally, his complaints against the Mielachava administration uh, for uh, um, uh, claims that he makes that they are infringing legislation regarding how prison colonies should be won, the rights of prisoners within them, uh, but also regarding his founding of a union for prisoners, a sort of classic uh, step taken by Navalny to try and politicise together uh, to form a movement in the desperate conditions in which he now finds himself. Navalny's appeals against his sentences have also been unsuccessful, and his court appearances provide an opportunity to see him by video link, And it's clear that he appears physically diminished. And so it looks really like the authorities are trying to break his spirit. And that's really an unsurprising conclusion, given that part of Navalny's appeal for many seems to be his apparently unbreakable spirit in the face of extraordinary pressure. Uh, His rhetoric during these court proceedings and on social media is, I would say, as eloquent and fiery as ever. And that's, in a sense, a continuation of the cat and mouse game that Morvan Yan and I write about in the book. If the authorities come for Navalny or his team in one way, and we look at this recently, but also in the 
broader span of their activities, then he and his team members find new ways to frustrate the authorities and to make it seem like their spirit is as strong as ever. But I should say that Navalny and his team have also been criticised themselves since the February invasion of Ukraine. One main criticism is that by focusing on corruption for all of these years, they've overlooked or didn't want to acknowledge Russian imperialism, which many critics claim has been the more pressing issue. And this blind spot has been linked by some uh, to some of Navalny's past xenophobic, nationalist and racist comments. But I should say that Navalny and his team have been unequivocal in their condemnation of Russia's unprovoked aggression against Ukraine this year. Going back, Steve, to one of your initial observations, Navalny is definitely receiving much less attention, both domestically and internationally, since the February full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And of course, that certainly suits the Kremlin. They want him out of sight and out of mind. But he and his team are doing whatever they can to remain relevant, including by re-registering the Anti-Corruption Foundation in the US and running smart voting in the September elections this year, albeit restricted to Moscow and in very, very different domestic political circumstances, where it seems as though there is much less tolerance within the presidential administration to allow space for even a tiny portion of the opposition. It seems as though those voices within the Kremlin who just want to say, no, there isn't any space for dissenting voices, let's crush them, including Navalny, his team and his movement, they're on the ascendant. Uh, But it does seem to be that the team are trying to take some steps to keep him relevant, to keep him part of the conversation. Thanks very much for that, uh, Ben. uh, And thanks in particular, or partially, for the kind of nuanced picture you give of of the way people are seeing Navalny... um, in the context of of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and 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 you know the fact that he focused on on corruption um, and not um, Russian imperialism, Russian Russia's designs or Putin's designs on on other countries. Um, uh, I guess I would say not really a much of an addition, but um, it seems that he. You know, as much as the Kremlin wants him to be unnoticed and irrelevant by by, by apparently uh, launching this new investigation into him or against him, um, they are acknowledging that he's still bothering uh, them. And and he made a point, I think, in his in his comments uh, on social media when he when he announced that he'd been informed of this of this probe, um, saying that look, you know, I'm. I'm in prison. You think I've been in prison, but you know the government says I've, I'm actually, you know, committing all these these dastardly acts. Uh, you know, so so he's kind of drawing a uh, kind of a contradictory, you know, picture of you know how can they how can they think I'm doing that when I'm in in prison and and much of the time, as you as you mentioned, you know, in solitary confinement. Um, so yeah, and 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 your point also about essentially an attempt it seems like to to break his spirit to break him um and that uh, has so far not been successful yeah I, I think it's certainly the case that well at least it's highly plausible that he's being punished for some of the activities and statements of his team abroad uh, so leonid volkov and the team are i think adjusting to the new conditions and are making their activities more outward facing more international facing. uh, And uh, that gives them a way to speak to maybe new broader audiences. And of course, the Kremlin 
won't like that. So, yeah, you're right to point to this tension within the Kremlin on the one hand, wanting to say, well, he's in prison now for the foreseeable future. He doesn't have the type of press coverage as he did before. So he's now no longer relevant. But maybe it speaks to the way in which Navalny has needled his way into the psyche of uh, key members of the political leadership within Russia, that even when he is behind bars, he still causes them trouble. Of course, I can't get inside their minds, but maybe he haunts their nightmares. And insofar as he is still able to get information out to the general public through his lawyers, although the Mialikov administration are trying to frustrate those information channels. And so insofar as he, he still is able to get information out and to use such colourful language that then leads to memes and allows people to be engaged in this content, uh, then he is an indication of another Russia, even if that other Russia um, with more pluralism seems as distant now as it has really in, 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 in the recent um, uh, past. Uh, but he still seems to trouble people within the administration. That maybe explains some of these new charges. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And yes, uh, of, of course, uh, it does. That does seem that prospect does seem to be more distant right now than it than it has in some time. Um, now, I'd like to also talk, or, or rather, to hear your thoughts about a couple of things that are happening in the State Duma, Russia's lower house of parliament. Uh, one is that earlier this month, a top Duma deputy, Vladimir Vasilyev, uh, said that the chamber was indefinitely stopping live transmissions of its plenary sessions. He said this step was being taken to avoid um, giving information to the, quote, enemy. Uh, and the other uh, is the push to expand uh, the infamous so-called gay propaganda law, which Putin signed in 2013 and which was a big part of the turn toward oppression and obscurantism that began when he uh, returned to the presidency in 2012 and still continues today, certainly. Uh, in short, the 2013 law, uh, it does seem like a long time ago, uh, banned the promotion, the quote, promotion of non-traditional sexual relations to minors. In other words, uh, this information could not be distributed uh, in a way that would get into, uh, provide it to minors. Now, the new amendments essentially would outlaw um, the so-called promotion entirely to people of any age. Uh, and they would also prohibit the dissemination of, quote, information that can make children want to change their gender, unquote. And gender identity, as, as anyone watching Russia uh, lately uh, knows, is something that Putin now mentions very frequently. Uh, as part of his, well, his shtick in a way, uh, his ba but his baseless claim that the United States and the West are waging some sort of culture war against Russia. And also, I would say, as part of what seems to be an effort to win support from anti-LGBT people, movements, and governments worldwide. Ben, uh, you're an expert on Russian politics, uh, and I believe um, also on the Russian parliament uh, in particular. What's your take on these developments? And, and why is the expansion of the nearly 10-year-old um, anti-LGBT legislation happening now? I think this so-called LGBT propaganda, the draft laws are the current domestic focus of Putin's so-called traditional values campaign, as you've just mentioned. And broadly speaking, Putin seems to be keen, really keen, dead keen on presenting a morally pure Russia 
that's battling attempts at interference from a morally corrupt liberal collective West. And this was certainly on full display during Putin's recent address to the Valdai International Discussion Club meeting. And part of the accusation is that the LGBTQ plus community in Russia is in a sense a foreign import and its members aren't truly Russian. Maybe the implication is that they're traitors. And that means that if this so-called propaganda can be stopped, then these corrupted souls in the understanding of the Russian political leadership will be able to return to something like the true path of Russian Orthodox heterosexual citizenship. I should at this point give a shout out to the work of Professor Dan Healy on this topic, including his very readable book, Russian Homophobia from Stalin to Sochi, which was published by Bloomsbury a few years ago. Dan places the history of the current Russian political leadership's campaign against sexual minority rights in a broader historical context in a really engaging way. Uh, and that involves showing how this issue maps onto the perennial broader discussion of Russia's place in the world and its similarities and differences with the West. As you've already noted, Steve, the draft legislation also introduces fines for so-called propaganda regarding children's gender identity, but it also proposes fines for so-called paedophilia propaganda, whatever that is. And I should say that this is a familiar trick by the authorities in Russia to taint the LGBTQ plus community, and I should say elements of the political opposition uh, also, um, to taint them with a false association with criminal activity regarding paedophilia. At first sight, this LGBT propaganda draft legislation might seem like an odd distraction during Russia's war on Ukraine, but I'd say that the two are very much connected. The bills allow Russia's political leadership to talk about the non-military values dimension of the conflict between Russia and the collective West, as they see it, at least. And this rhetoric has become increasingly unhinged. Uh, so one example, in a parliamentary hearing on the bills that took place on the 17th of October, one participant stated the following, quote, Sodomy is the core of Satanism against which our brothers and sons are now dying on Ukrainian soil, unquote. So, as this particular argument seems to go, the LGBT propaganda bills are a case of fighting Satanism at home in Russia, whereas the Russian military is fighting Satanism in Ukraine, as I said, quite unhinged. These bills, which were adopted in their first readings on the 27th of October, have around 400 co-sponsors, including the State Duma Speaker, Vyacheslav Alodin, and the leaders of all parliamentary party factions. So the vast majority of State Duma deputies have signed up as formal co-sponsors. And this doesn't happen all the time. It is one indication that this is a bit of political theatre that has the full-throated support of the presidential administration. And the goal is simple. They want to present a united front, an example of what since the February full-scale invasion of Ukraine has been referred to as the Donbass consensus. So the Russian authority is really keen to project an image of a society that's unified around the president's military campaign, but also around the defense of traditional values from these alleged foreign influences. And the State Duma provides a handy platform on which to perform this particular bit of political theater. And yet... There have been some clear challenges to this narrative of unity recently. At the beginning of October, the chairman of the Duma's Defence Committee, uh, Colonel General Andrei Katapolov, criticised the Ministry of Defence for, quote, lying, unquote, about the war. 
Uh, of course, other much more influential individuals have also been criticizing the Ministry of Defense, including Ramzan Kadyrov and Yevgeny Prigozhin. But statements like Katapolov clearly jar with the aim to use the state Duma to project an image of unity uh, to carry out this Donbass consensus, as they put it. Uh, there have also been other recent relatively public disagreements between state Duma deputies and executive bodies regarding exemptions from mobilization. And all of this might explain the rather extraordinary step taken recently to stop the live broadcast of Duma plenary sessions. According to the official justification, these live broadcasts have been stopped because of the sensitive nature of the information relating to the war that's sometimes discussed during certain portions of plenary sessions. As you've already noted, Vladimir Vasiliev, head of the United Russia faction, said that, quote, those questions that require sensitive discussion in a narrow professional circle should not be the property of our enemy, unquote. But other possibilities for stopping the live cast have ranged from not wanting to worry Russians with the sometimes alarming details regarding the conflict to allowing deputies to speak openly without fear of their comments being taken out of context. But I'd say that worries about overly critical comments, maybe unscripted critical comments from certain deputies, may well be a core reason for stopping these live broadcasts, albeit not stated explicitly. According to Article 100, Part 2 of the 1993 Constitution, and this is a quotation, meetings of the Federation Council and the State Duma are open, end of quotation, and according to Article 37 of the uh, Duma Standing Orders, plenary sessions, quote, are held openly, publicly and covered in the media, unquote. There are, of course, grounds to hold closed sessions within the State Duma, including when discussing classified information. But I think the Duma's decision to increase opacity um, has clearly been criticised by some senior figures. One example, Senator Andrei Klishas, uh, has spoken unfavourably about the move, and he said that the Federation Council isn't going to be following suit. So what does all of this mean? Overall, I think the LGBT propaganda draft legislation and the discussion about limiting the Duma's information accessibility show a clear tension what is that? Well, that's a tension between the desire to project an image of unity, but then fears that very real disagreements within the elite about the war in Ukraine might be given a very public stage in the Duma. And so they want to be as public as possible about the LGBT legislation, but they also want to prevent instances of certain critical deputies, maybe being proxies for certain portions of the elite, criticising executive bodies like the Ministry of Defence. And so we're in this sort of weird limbo period where certain portions of state Duma plenary sessions are officially uh, closed. Uh, they, if you look at the transcripts, they don't provide stenographic records of what was discussed. Uh, and you have the decision not to uh, broadcast the plenary sessions live. Uh, and so I think this is you know, maybe just sort of a, a sort of a case study of the broader difficulties that we're seeing within the elite about how to uh, juggle the need as they see it for unity, but also these disagreements, as I pointed out. Uh, thanks very much. That's that's all extremely interesting. Um, I'll just make a couple of comments. For one thing, Vasilia, uh, I guess as you say, the head of the United Russia faction, his his description of the Duma as um, a place for sensitive discussions among a narrow professional circle seems <laughs> a bit of a stretch to me. Um, but 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 I think you know your point is is really well taken. The the idea that sort of, I mean. I would say you know, it's for decades, two decades, you know, Putin and the government have been trying to 
control politics, control who gets into the Duma, mm-hmm. um, and 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 make sure that there's uh, you know pretty much unity there, um, including the use of of kind of nominal nominal opposition parties. But in this case, they're actually having finding themselves having to try to control what's actually said by the people who are already in the Duma, which mm. I don't think is, has been much of a problem in the past. Yeah, on that point, you know, my particular research relates to, uh, as you mentioned, the state Duma, but also I look at how different factions within the elite, within the executive, different ministries disagree with each other and how those disagreements play out when it comes to draft legislation passing through the Duma. And so to me, this isn't necessarily surprising because, yes, the authorities have taken steps to stop the real opposition uh, getting into the state Duma. We only have systemic opposition parties, but the state Duma still ends up being this sort of proxy elite battleground. And so these comments that these critical comments that we see from state Duma deputies is not really a sign that the Duma is functioning as a, as a proper democratic legislature. It's just another sign that it functions as this battleground. And we can see proxy conflicts relating to particular policy proposals. One interesting development uh, is uh, taking place at the moment regarding the Communist Party. I suppose that has been a narrative for quite a while that the Communist Party is sort of flirting um, with this boundary between systemic and non-systemic opposition. Uh, but they have been uh, elements within them, and not just the more radical elements, uh, but they have maybe been testing the extent to which they can go off script. And it could be that this decision to close some of the sessions to stop the live broadcast is a recognition of that. And I suppose I'm just repeating my main uh, hypothesis there. We still haven't got to the bottom of it. And there have been calls to restart the live broadcast of plenary sessions uh, from people, including, as I mentioned, Andrew Clusius, but also some members of parliament have been uh, calling for it as well. So I think it's an issue that's going to play out. Um, but as I say, I, I'm not too surprised, given the way that I think about the state Duma more broadly being this elite battleground. Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and, and of course, the kind of battles uh, among the uh, among the elites are are increasing, as you mentioned, with the uh, criticism of the defense ministry from Prigozhin uh, and Kadyrov, um, and there's there's a lot of that going on. Um, but moving to the other you know, the other issue, uh, just I. I can't match your eloquence, but just the the point about um, this kind of anti-LGBT battle or um, the legislation being part of uh, the way the the Kremlin and Putin are trying to um, cast Russia and themselves as kind of the the fighting a war against the West and the U.S., Mm -hmm. but not not just a a military war, but, but also a moral and uh, war um, and you know Putin has used the words Satanism, Satanists. I think in connection with the West, um, and uh, so you know I really think it's it's kind of they're really stepping up this this narrative. Um, I saw a colleague of mine, uh, Rob Colson, pointed out he he saw a report on I think it was Channel One Television, the state one of the state channels um, where they. They talked about the war in Ukraine as the, the Ukrainian theater, like mm. as if it's just a part of, it's just a theater in the wider war against the collective West, which is another term that you mentioned that mm. uh, the Russian government is using more and more. 
Yeah, it certainly fits this broader pattern, uh, including since the Russian military setbacks of saying, well, one of the reasons why we haven't had spectacular successes because it's not just Russia against what they call as, you know, being neo-Nazi elements within Ukraine, but Ukraine is just a proxy for the West more broadly. And so I think this narrative uh, about the military is just being paralleled with the values dimension to the conflict. And also we saw, I mentioned Putin's address at the Valdai um, International Discussion Club. He uh, points seem to be saying, those of you in the West who might not be on board with my whole plan, you will recognize within my campaign for traditional values, something that resonates with you and that you might be sympathetic to, including elements within, we can imagine, the United States. And so as well as being messaging towards a domestic audience that the Russian military is carrying out, in a sense, you know, with this language of Satanism, a holy war, uh, that he is also trying to reach out to elements, uh, international elements, to say, um, if you like the idea of traditional values being protected from a corrupt liberal West, then maybe you should think twice if you haven't been on board with my project in other areas. So he's clearly trying to do multiple things at once, trying to speak to uh, different audiences. And it will be interesting to see going forward what the response is to that particular address. We know that Peskov said afterwards, maybe in a slightly fawning fashion, that uh, Putin's address will be read, re-read, and it will become a key text in his over of, of political statements. It would be interesting to see going forward how those different audiences react, including those audiences outside of Russia, maybe within the US, to see whether they pick up that particular approach from Putin. Um, who knows, though? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one, one aspect, uh, one thing the Kremlin is probably playing to in part is, is the, you know, the elections in the West and, and in the uh -huh. U.S. Uh, that are coming up. Um, all right. Well, th thanks. Uh, those are those are really, really great uh, points and explanations. We're uh, getting a little bit short on time, but I'd like to take a few questions or, or ask Ben to take a few questions um, if there are any. And I do see we have one question that's come in on the replies. Uh, the question is, uh, sorry, it's from Frank. Apologies, I can't read the small print. Uh, but the question is, what assistance is being provided to countries being targeted by Kremlin influence ops? Okay, well, I'll try and answer that question, but I should say that I'm certainly not an expert in that particular on that issue. It does seem to be, though, that even before the invasion of uh, the full scale invasion of Ukraine earlier this year, that Western governments were maybe realizing that uh, the influence ops that were being coordinated from Moscow needed to be taken more seriously. So, my rather anecdotal impression is that that has risen in importance in the agenda of Western governments and that they are trying to provide on-the-ground assistance uh, to deal with those influ in, in sort of um, targeted influence ops by the Kremlin. But beyond that, I'm uh, unfortunately, Frank, in, in no position to provide anything more illuminating, unfortunately. All right. Thanks very much. Um, thanks very much, uh, Ben. Uh, another question. Um is from Anna Reed. Um, 
Can we give Anna the speaking privilege and she can ask the question? Good morning. I really appreciate uh, Radio Free Europe and what you are doing here. I want to thank for um, uh, Ben Noble for an amazing analysis. I think it's extremely astute to link it to the Putin speech. My question is related to a broader international implication and what was mentioned in this speech, especially in the context of the culture war, so to speak. And those were two comments that were reacted to by India by praising Modi and also a reference to Taiwan. It's obvious to me that there is connection, but I would love to hear what you think. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anna. Can you specify the particular statements that you were referring to? There was a specific statement. I, I don't have the text in my hand. But there was a specific statement of the fact that the, the aspirations of China to retake Taiwan, and that, w- that was a reaction in China, very positive, of course, to that statement by Putin in, the speech by, um, in, in, in his speech. And there was some reference to uh, independence of India um, and Mahdi's policies uh, not uh, going along with the U.S. policies. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Anna. Yeah, well, certainly we saw in the address to the Valde International Discussion Club uh, lots of familiar points from Putin, which is one of the reasons why I thought that some of the initial responses saying, look, Putin isn't actually saying anything very new here. Some of that analysis, early analysis was spot on, that we shouldn't get carried away, that, you know, he was going back to the familiar song sheet that he's been singing from from many, many years. And that includes this challenge to uh, that he sees it to uh, a US-led unipolar world. And we see these talking points being repeated by Putin himself, but also by uh, Lavrov uh, saying that uh, Lavrov's saying that uh, the Russia is part of this challenge, that there's going to be a systematic, a sort of systemic crisis in the international community. And all that we're seeing in Ukraine is a spark point of this challenge to US unipolarity that's been coming for many, many years and that isn't just being led, being spearheaded by Russia that it's a manifestation of discontent more broadly within the world, which is also, uh, I mentioned multiple audiences that Putin was speaking to, but we should also note uh, another audience that I haven't noted, which is uh, countries around the world that aren't uh, really aligned, maybe sort of using old-fashioned language perhaps, but non-aligned countries. Uh, Those countries that maybe think that when the West talks about the international rules-based order, uh, that that is only an order that's upheld by the West when it is in the West's interests, and that Putin is wanting to say to them, look, this is an opportunity for a multipolar world. Uh, What we're seeing in Ukraine might uh, be uh, very aggressive, but this is just one way in which we shift when we see this sort of tectonic shift in relations. And so we see lots of senior officials within uh, the, the Russian political system echoing these points, reinforcing these points. And as you've mentioned, that can manifest itself 
uh, in overtures and positive statements regarding China and Taiwan, uh, clearly another potential flashpoint um, at the moment, but also regarding uh, India. Of course, uh, a few months ago, Putin maybe didn't get the response that he wanted from China and India regarding uh, the, the military aggression of Russia against Ukraine. Uh, and so it's unsurprising that we're seeing these further attempts to try and create a narrative of Russia just being one instance of this broader challenge to U.S. unipolarity. And as, as Steve mentioned, lots of this is framed within the upcoming midterms in the U.S., uh, and within doubts uh, regarding what would happen if, for example, the, the Republican Party were to uh, retake the House, what that would mean for funding for Ukraine. So there's lots of uncertainty and nervousness in the air. And I think that's one of the reasons why Putin tried to have this agenda setting speech that has got lots of people talking. Uh, but I'll go back to my first point that, you know, he has been saying lots of this for a long time. So we don't need to completely readjust what we think. I don't think uh, he'd said anything that fundamentally adjusts uh, what we think he is trying to do with military aggression towards Ukraine. Okay, thanks a lot, Ben. Um, and yeah, I, I found myself, I guess, maybe also uh, kind of torn between the idea that, look, and, and, and in the past, many times, uh, the, I've had the same feeling. He said nothing new here. It's just, it's all the same. Why are we paying so much attention? Um, but also um, people then pointing out that, well, you know, he said a lot of things that are somewhat meaningful if you want to understand what's going on. Um, and uh, and in some cases kind of stepping up the rhetoric. Um, and it's always, uh, you know, he said things that are very much meant like on nuclear uh on the use of nuclear weapons for example he said things that are very much meant i think to to keep people guessing um <laughs> but if you you know you can ignore them or you can pay attention to them and, and you know see if he comes up with something new um so uh yeah i, I did i i found you know and it's sort of a constant problem <laughs> with his speeches that he, he really does say the same thing um, uh, very often. And he has a, a captive audience, I guess. Um, so, okay. Uh, I, let me see. I think we have time for one more question, if there are any. Okay. Um, All right. Um, there's one question from, okay. A question from a consultant. Um, let's go ahead with that. Sorry, the, um, the Twitter ID is consultant. Hello. Thank you for letting me speak. Um, thanks. Uh, ben, and thanks, Steve. Uh, I always listen to this podcast, and I'm glad to join live. Um, ben, the question is for you. Um, did Navalny, when he first launched his anti-corruption campaign in Russia, did he have to take a pro-imperialist or pro-expansionist um, uh, 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 stance in regards to ex-former, ex- 
Soviet Union states um, to be taken seriously by the Russian public. Um, and I ask that because of Russia's history of expansionism and imperialism that um, while maybe some Western nations have moved on or we'd like to think we've moved on from that, um, the Russian mindset um, certainly has not, especially among you know, ethnic Russians. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, and we definitely discuss it at length in the book. In the early 2000s, when Navalny was emerging as an anti-corruption activist, but also as a politician, what he tried to do, broadly speaking, was to bring together elements of the political opposition in Russia that aren't natural uh, partners. So he tried to bring together more liberal opposition with a more nationalist opposition. And so he would make these statements that are uh, incredibly controversial and that he has been condemned for by many uh, that are racist, xenophobic and nationalist, including some videos that he made, uh, which are still up and which he hasn't really apologized for. And so it gets to your language of whether he had to. That is the million dollar question, whether, whether uh, excuse me, whether Navalny actually believes uh, these nationalist talking points or whether he just thought that it was expeditious, that it was important for him when building a broad coalition to try and make these types of statements uh, in order to, to build this maybe improbable uh, coalition. He was talking about... Um, the uh, need to introduce a visa, a visa regime with states of Central Asia for a relatively long time. But I should say that in his manifesto, when he tried to run in the 2018 presidential election, we don't see a repeat of the language that we saw in the 2000s, uh, where many people could say that Navalny does come across as being uh, having a sense of superiority of this sort of Russian imperial mindset that he's much better than people from Central Asia and the Caucasus. But at the end of the day, uh, we weren't able to speak to Navalny when writing the book, and we aren't able to get inside his head. And so it's not as if we have a firm, strong um, research-based position on what he actually believes, whether in his heart of hearts uh, he, he is on board with this agenda. All we can do is go by his statements and when he said them, and as I mentioned in my comments, uh, he and his team have been unequivocal in their condemnation of Russia's aggression towards Ukraine this year. All right. Uh, thanks very much for that, uh, Ben. Um, and thanks for the questions. Uh, running out of time, so let's wrap it up here. Ben, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Great, great insights. Thanks for having me, Steve. Okay, once again, I've been speaking to Ben Noble, an Associate Professor of Russian Politics at University College London, an Associate Fellow at Chatham House, and a co-author of the book Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future, with a question mark after that last part. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the central newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts uh, on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be taking a break next Monday, uh, but we'll be back for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia on November 14th. Meanwhile, please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, this Friday. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions.